Welcome back to the new year. Whether you're back at your desk today or you're still taking a few days off to ramp back up for 2024, this interview is exactly what you need, or at least it's exactly what I needed to hear to kick off the new year. It's the perfect complement to last week's throwback episode with Seth Godin because Jerisha Hawk is another expert that I love to learn from. When we interviewed her a little over three years ago, she shared a ton of great information about selling to clients with money or what's often referred to as high ticket sales. And that's what we focused the title and promotion of that interview on back in 2020. But we covered a lot of other things too, including the idea of super thinking. That is the idea that we need to be creating space for coming up with new ideas and insights and not just reacting to what's going on around us. And quite honestly, a lot of us spent the past year reacting to economic issues and artificial intelligence and a lot of other stuff that changed the way that we work, changed who we work with, in some cases, the work that we do. So I think you're going to like this throwback interview with business coach Jerisha Hawk. Before we get to that, if you want this year to be better than last year, better clients, better projects, and better opportunities, you absolutely need to visit thecopywriterunderground.com and check out the resources waiting for you there. That's thecopywriterunderground.com. I've talked a lot about it on the podcast. So just go to that page and check out what's included and then join. Now let's get to our interview with Jerisha Hawk. All right, Jerisha, welcome. We want to kick this off with your story. How did you end up as a high-ticket sales coach? Well, I kind of stumbled my way here. I was an engineer by trade before entering into like before even knowing this whole online world existed. Um, and I started doing some live videos, started getting into coaching, um, just people asking me to give advice or insight on how I was able to navigate my corporate career, how I was able to position myself for like upward mobility opportunities in a non-traditional way or in a way that just, you know, wasn't the same beaten path of how you're supposed to excel in corporate. Um, And one thing I started recognizing during my coaching calls at the very, very beginning when I was charging, you know, $60 for a month of coaching, less than what you would pay for a fitness class. Um, And The biggest thing that I noticed was the transferable skills that I had acquired in corporate America. Um, I used to, was a lead engineer of a $400 million pipeline project. I was responsible for um, managing our money on a day-to-day basis, making decisions based off of input and output. Um, And I also, so I understood how money moved and, you know, from like a, a corporate perspective But then I also understood kind of like a gap that I noticed in the industry or that I noticed just from people that I was discussing on how do you effectively articulate your value in a way that whoever is in the other position, like the buying decision or the position of authority to make a decision, how do you articulate your value in a way where they get it and that it also correlates to how it impacts the bottom line or impacts the thing that's most important to them? And how do you position yourself to be able to do that repeatedly? And once I started to recognize that those three things were really like my sweet spot, and as I started growing in the coaching business, um, that's where high ticket sales was like my natural like zone of genius. Um, Because I think when you are selling offers that are $2,000 to $20,000, that's usually the range most of my clients are in. There's just a different way that you have to articulate your value than if you're selling something for 500 bucks. There's a different way that you have to position yourself in order to attract people to not just know, like, and trust you, but to like, believe you, respect you and and align with you from a value-based perspective to want to be able to invest with you at a higher level. Um, So it was definitely a work in progress. It it took about two years to feel confident in myself to be able to kind of own that as an identity in this online world before I really dove like head in. Um, But that's it was really recognizing these transferable skills and then also identifying where is the gap that I see in the industry that we're in and where can I really be adding value from a unique perspective. So before we jump into all of the aspects of high ticket sales, I want to ask about your engineering background because this seems really unique to me. I've talked to a lot of people who've built online businesses who are working in the online space, and I don't think any of them are engineers. So is there something from your engineering background and education that like made you especially good at what you're doing today, skills that you learned there that you apply to uh, how you help people today? Yeah, I have clients that joke and say, I'm never hiring a coach that wasn't an engineer after working with you now. 
Um, I think one of the biggest things is that as an as an engineer, like we're trained to use the resources that we have to creatively solve problems. So I think, you know, I think that was like a mindset shift that individually helped me as a business owner in the online space or just with my business, because I don't look at problems at, as, I don't know, opportunities of failure exactly. Like if it's more of a big experiment and it's like, okay, I'm willing to test and try and experiment until I can figure out a solution rather than if I try once feeling like ridiculously defeated if it doesn't pan out. And I think that's a that's a mindset aspect that really does correlate to how I coach my clients is really getting them on board that it's really progress over perfection. We're really here. It's continuous improvement, not get it right on the first time. Um, and so I think that's like a it correlates into how we teach and coach our curriculum. And I think it makes me a bit different. But I think the other thing that really has been a huge advantage for me um, because of being an engineer is I think very process oriented. So all of my curriculum is designed in a way where if a client comes in, it's like it's like an assembly line. How can we design our curriculum in a way that moves them through that assembly line so that they are getting consistent results from client to client and it's very predictable, it's very repeatable. And I think that is a huge reason why um, we have a very high success rate of our clients. We have a, a coaching program that's around at $2,000 price point. I'd say 75, 80% of our clients earn a full return on investment within the first 90 days, um, which traditional courses or online programs, they normally have about a 10 to 12% completion rate in our industry on average. Um, with our higher programs that are in the five-figure price point, like we're, we're just able to help people grow pretty fast, pretty quickly. And I think that's 100% attributed to how we design our curriculum. And that is what something I learned from being an engineer, like how do you think about the step-by-step process that would guide somebody through knowing when they need to do what and where their focus needs to be to be able to produce whatever the desired end objective is that was promised to begin with. So I think just how I think about curriculum is more aligned with maybe how, um, you know, Apple thinks about creating a new software and creating a new product or how maybe software companies think about developing software. It's this alpha beta delta launch is through this continuous improvement and this like feedback loop that you get from clients to enhance your curriculum. Um, and I think even the clients we get to serve, like when they start to think about their curriculum and their client experience journey, it really puts them at a huge advantage against their peers because most other coaches or service providers or copywriters in the industry, they may be amazing at what they do, but they may not know how to deliver their client experience and like the delivery of whatever they do in that predictable of a manner. So I think those are two things that have I 100% attribute to being like my engineering background for sure. Well, let's let's break that down even more because um uh, you know, I'm not naturally a process person. I don't have a, ba- a background in engineering. Um so if I want to create this incredible experience for my copywriting clients and also, you know, with my programs that we run together, I want high completion rates. I want them to be engaged. I want them to perform well in those programs. Um, how can I do that better? Like, what are some really specific steps I can take, especially if I don't, you know, I'm not naturally process-minded like you? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the first things that I recommend, um, and I think really what elevates a client experience and really differentiates a person from um, peers or competitors in the industry is your ability to be able to anticipate your client's needs before they know they need them. So I think in sales or in marketing, a lot of us can default to know, okay, I need to overcome some objections to get somebody to buy. And we think that's the only time that we're going to have to overcome an objection. Once a client enrolls and pays and signs on for their copywriting services, you still have to overcome objections that they are going to have to do, to provide you the, the provide you the deliverables that you need to produce the the website that you, you know, they need to send over the copy. Well, I guess they're right. You guys are writing the copy, but whatever the deliverables are, like there's, there's still objections that we have to overcome once they become a client to get to the finished product. So one of the first things that I recommend to enhance your process, even if you're not process oriented, is look at your client journey from the moment they enroll until a project is complete and identify what are the two to four key areas where there's typically resistance or resistance to doing whatever is needed to be able to move them forward in the process. And then start to creatively think of, okay, what could I be doing to help either remove that barrier altogether or to upfront communicate with the client to say, hey, 
at these points during the journey, you may feel some resistance. You may experience X, Y, or Z. And this is there. I may not be able to remove that feeling or that fear that you may experience. But here are the tools that you're going to need to be able to manage them so that you can still move forward versus stalling, stopping, or quitting altogether. And I think that is one thing that um, everybody listening to this can absolutely do in their client experience journey or their curriculum uh, delivery journey, depending on how you show up as a copywriter, um, to be able to enhance that experience and help increase the likelihood that your clients are going to get the result that you promised when they enrolled with you. So those are client processes. What about personal processes for things like, you know, getting more work done or maybe even, you know, we talk about morning routines, those kinds of things. Like how can we take those same principles and apply them to processes that help us be more effective? Oh, like in the business, like on the back end operations? Yeah. Um, business and just like with execution and getting things done and, you know, making sure that, you know, we're actually moving forward um, with building the parts of our business that maybe aren't client facing? Man, I, I wish I had like the perfect solution for that because I struggle with that on a daily basis, Rob. But um, Me too. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> well, one of the things that um, has been really powerful for me as a business owner is um, either every Monday or every Friday, just depending on the week, I carve out about an hour in my calendar to do what I like to call super thinking. Um, there, Brooke Castillo has an amazing podcast about it. And there's also a book called The Road Less Stupid that also really discusses just the importance of giving yourself time to think and come up with ideas and come up with solutions rather than just reacting. Um, so that is that carved out time is really like how that has helped me improve my processes from a business owner and operational back end because now I'm starting, I guess the way a problem can present itself, right? Like how do I get how do I enroll 10 new clients by the end of the month? And if we just start I think the natural default for a lot of us is just, um, you know, you kind of just start throwing spaghetti at the wall and waiting to see what sticks without fully diagnosing, like, what's the actual problem that we're trying to solve and what is really planning the process rather than planning the outcome? Like, what what is really required of me to accomplish that goal, given the parameters and conditions that exist? And I think that's, I guess a process like developing a process on how you make decisions is probably one of the most important processes I have developed as a personal individual and has allowed me to, um, you know, lead a better team, a very lean team and be an effective business owner is having a process for how you make decisions. Um, and that's something that's been a work in time, but it all started with me setting up time to just give myself time to think, what are the challenges that I'm currently experiencing this week? What is the actual problem that I'm trying to solve? Like really giving myself space to diagnose a situation or a challenge or an obstacle beyond just like what I'm seeing at surface level. And it normally always boils down to some like mindset shift or internal fear that I have that I haven't reconciled yet. That's really the thing that's preventing me from moving forward. Like it's what I've noticed for me, it's some area or specificity within a self-sabotaging activity that is preventing me from taking the action or making the decision or making the hire or being bold and courageous enough in my marketing content or whatever it is. Um, so I, I don't know if that's like the answer you were looking for, Rob, but I think like creating space in your calendar to give yourself the opportunity to actually think and properly diagnose challenges and situations. And something I recently told my clients to do, and this is something I revisit on a quarterly basis personally, is look back at past, like look back at past, like over the last quarter, what were some key decisions that um, you, you had you you made, but really think about how did I make that decision and what influenced that decision? Did I make the decision out of fear? Did I make that decision out of an abundant mindset? Did I make that decision um, reactionary? Was I proactive in that decision? Because then you can start to reverse engineer. Like I had this obstacle. I this is the criteria that I used to make that decision. I maybe not didn't recognize it in the moment, but reflecting back, I can kind of see it. And then I can now make a decision. Do I want to continue making decisions that way? Like, does that actually serve me and serve where I'm trying to go? Um, and that's something that, you know, you can teach your team how to do as well. So that when you start delegating and hiring team members, you're not just delegating tasks, but you're also teaching them how to make decisions to move the company forward. So that's, that's one that's relevant. I literally did it yesterday, Rob. And that's, so yeah, I hope that answered the question. <laughs> 
I mean, it definitely gives me things to think about here because, you know, the process for making decisions and the process for um, using your time more wisely, that's that's something that I'm always trying to dial in too. So I love hearing your perspective on it. I, there's some things here I'm going to try. I'm definitely putting the road to less stupid on my book list. Uh, I could use a lot less stupid in my life. <laughs> it's a good read for sure. Okay. So you mentioned you did this yesterday with your team. Can we run through that and your process for making decisions with your team after you've already diagnosed the problem? Can you give us some examples of what that conversation looked like with your team? Um, so we can start doing it within our own business, you know, whether or not we have a team. Yeah. I mean, my team is two part-time employees and like we're a seven-figure company. We are very lean. And I was doing this before I had the team. But I think sometimes uh, I want to point this out before even diving into this, uh, Kira, if this is okay, is I think sometimes when we're solopreneurs, we forget that we're also employees to the company that we're building. And I think it's so important for us to not lose sight of that is like, yeah, it might be just you building this company, but also think about yourself as an individual. I'm also an employee of this company. And that means like, am I giving myself performance reviews? Am I sitting down with myself and having like being an active participant in the strategy meeting? that you would be having if, there, if the team was bigger. So I just wanted to point that out because regardless if you have a team or you don't, um, it's super important to be having these conversations. Um, but with the team, like one of the ways that we've been doing this before, I, I was very terrible at this. I would just have a list of tasks. It would have very clear outlines of like what, well, a lot of the time it actually didn't have clear outlines on what success looked like or how to get it done. And then I would hand them over to somebody. And as the what I realized is that I'm still the one making all of the decisions um, and really like I stopped necessarily having to execute the task, but now I'm having to answer all the decision questions that they have, um, which is not you now become the bottleneck in the business and can stall the growth of the company. Um, but how this looked this past week with the team, I did this yesterday individually, but um, about a week ago, we did this with the team and having help like when we are creating new projects. So it's like, okay, where do we, this is the end objective that we're trying to get to by the end of the year. That was what this discussion was. Is like, how do we finish the year based off of these goals and metrics that we set at the beginning of the year? And we kind of start from a clean slate. Um, that's something I also learned from corporate is like, a, I think it was called a zero sum budget where every year we would start at from zero and somebody, you would have to basically like, uh, Reestablish necessity for purchasing things, hiring things, where we spent money, where we spent time. We'd have to do that every single year. So I kind of take that same approach on a quarterly basis on when we plan goals. If we had to start from where we are right now, not obligated to doing anything we were doing yesterday, not obligated to doing anything that we said we were going to do tomorrow, what are the things that we would do to get the to hit the objective that we try to hit? And we, everybody submits their project ideas. Um, and once those project ideas are established and set, then we start to diagnose like, okay, what is the, like, is this scope of work clearly defined? Is this something that we can complete in the next six weeks? So how, how does, this is something we also learned from Basecamp, um, the software company. They have a really great book called Shape Up and the Shape Up book walks through the process of how they plan projects. So a lot of the inspiration for what we're doing now for our company is actually based off of, um, some of the framework that they teach inside of that book on how to break down problems and clearly define the problem that you're trying to solve and all of that. Um, but one of the things that we have all of our team members do is, okay, what would be like, what are the things that have to happen in order to accomplish this project? But then also it's the responsibility of the team members to say, what decisions would somebody need to be able to make to be able to complete this task? And now this allows us to start shifting ownership um, and also allows them to see themselves as owners, a part of the process, because it's not just about you doing what Jerisha told you to do, but okay, what are the decisions that I need to be able to make to be able to complete this task and kind of thinking about them before the project actually rolls out. Um, and what shape up kind of calls that is like, uh, identifying the rabbit holes or like, what are the potential pitfalls that you might run into and how can you do more of that thinking on the front end rather than being reactionary to it? Like once things roll out. Um, so that is something like it, it's very collaborative. There's some work that they do ahead of time and they bring that to the meeting so that we can be a bit more efficient because we have a, a remote team um, during our time together. But I think just diagnosing like what are the decisions that we have to make? And then now it's been my responsibility. And I think as a as an individual business owner, or if you have a team, it's really important. This is new for us. Of like, how do we make decisions as a company? And then how can I start to coach my team members on how to do that more effectively 
um, while we're, you know, learning and growing so that they can feel more confident in their decision-making ability rather than just running back to me saying like, this is the problem. What am I supposed to do? And me giving them the answer. So I'm really taken with this idea of running a performance review on, you know, a, on a single person in the business. That's not me too. I've never considered that before. And I, there's a lot of talk, you know, when you start as a freelancer or whatever that you, you know, may have the worst boss in the world, right? That, because we are our own bosses and we're, we don't hold ourselves accountable to the things that we maybe say we do. Do you have like a, a formal, like, like a form or a set of questions that you ask yourself when you do that kind of thing? Or is it informal and you're just thinking, you know, what am I doing to reach my goals? What is the goal that I'm trying to reach? What does that look like? Well, the I, <laughs> I'm working on creating it a bit more formal. I'm laughing because the first question I ask myself is like, would I hire myself again? Yeah, that, that's a terrible question. <laughs> it, it, is, it is, but it's very enlightening. Like I do it with my team members every quarter, every six months. I'm like, knowing what I know about this person's performance, their interactions, like would I hire them again? So when I do my own performance reviews, I'm like, well, would I hire myself? Like to do the things that I'm saying that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I'm laughing because I've, I've had to fire myself multiple times. And luckily, I've been able to rehire myself multiple times. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a really good reality check. And it's like, if the answer is no, it's like, why is that? Like where, and it's, it's really having like these conscious, like radical conversations um, with yourself. And I mean, I always say like, I think entrepreneurship is the best form of therapy if you allow it to be. Um, because some people will one, not maybe give honest answers to that question. And two, if they are saying that like, okay, yes, I'm dropping the ball here, here, and here. Are you going to be operate with a level of self-integrity to say, okay, take ownership for where I maybe have been dropping the ball and like recognize this is what I'm committed to doing moving forward. Um, but that's your, that's usually the question I start with. Um, and then asking myself, okay, well, well, why or why not? Like what's actually coming up? And then that really starts to, it's, that starts to peel back the layers of like where the actual, again, it's going back to like really properly diagnosing the actual problem. Cause then it starts to say like, oh, well maybe I'm, I'm not doing a good enough job actually communicating expectations to my clients. That's why I'm having this issue with, you know, boundaries being abused. And it's like, okay, well, what do you need to be doing to better communicate expectations with clients so that there are healthier boundaries between your working relationship rather than you burning yourself out or getting to a place where you absolutely resent your clients? And then it just allowed, that has always allowed me to actually dig deeper and actually find out, like, take ownership of what's going on rather than saying, well, well this is just what it is and like kind of. Um, I don't know, crying wolf to the circumstances. Um, but it's actually been a really empowering exercise as long as I maintain that, that angle of perspective. Um, but that's, it normally starts with that question. And it, then it's a series of like, well, why is this happening? Well, where is this coming up? Um, okay, well, well, what caused that? Another question that I always ask during my performance evaluations is like, where am, where am I not taking ownership? And like, where do I need to be taking ownership at a greater level? Um, and then another question, uh, I might need to pull this up. I might be able to send this to you guys to put it in the show notes later. Cause I do have some questions that I ask myself every single time, but another one is just like, what decision am I delaying out of fear? Like what decision am I not making because I'm afraid? Those are good. Those are really good. So I, yeah, I definitely need to fire myself. I'll do it right. <laughs> I'll do it right after this recording. Let's pivot a little bit here. And I really want to talk about high ticket sales. Um, let's start with where we mess this up. And maybe, you know, I know you work with some copywriters. Maybe we generalize it a little bit more. But where do we typically fall down when we're trying to make the high ticket sale? Well, I will talk about copywriters because it's really interesting that a lot of writers that when they initially come to me, um, there's this huge mindset that copywriters can't make money online or that writers don't get paid high ticket. And like there's, and I'm not sure if this is the same for listeners uh, here, but that oh, is yeah. a, okay. Yes. Wanted to make sure it wasn't just like my pool of people in the world, but like they come to me with this belief that like, oh, because I'm a writer, unless I'm like Rachel Hollis or like Oprah and have this New York Times bestselling book, I can't make money as a writer. Um, and I just think the very, like, I think that belief is where a lot of individuals go wrong 
because they don't even give themselves permission that working with you know clients paying them two thousand or fifteen thousand or forty thousand dollars for projects is even available to them. So like you know, Kira, I think that's like the first like where people go wrong, especially copywriters, is they don't even give themselves permission that that's available to them as a as an option in their business. So yeah, so let's assume then that I want to start adding high ticket sales to my business, whether it's, you know, projects, you know, $2,000 plus, or I'm not even sure, maybe high tickets more than that, $5,000, $10,000. Like, what are, what are the steps? How do we start um, figuring out like what it is that we should be offering and how do we sell it? Yeah. Um, I want to say, like, I know somebody, a friend that's a copywriter, she sells a $40,000 copywriting contract for a 12 month agreement. Um, and she, she literally sells out every single year, all of her spots because, but I'm like, how did she do that? Or how can somebody listening to this do that? I think the first thing is like recognize, like one, actually, um, getting clear on defining what the offer promise is going to be. And this is where the mindset typically needs to shift. Cause it's not like, well, I'm, you know, we, we have to, we have to really think about it beyond just like I'm writing emails for somebody or I'm creating a sales page copy or like thinking about it from like what the deliverable is but really start to think about it as like, what is the promise that I'm guaranteeing with this? You know, let's say you're doing a sales page um, for somebody's coaching program launch. And I know most people that I know in this space that are, char they charge five to $15,000 to do that. And it's not just because of how much quote unquote time that they spend writing, but they understand how to articulate the value from, I know that me giving them the sales page is going to produce X amount of money for them. So shifting how, like really thinking about what is the promise or the guarantee, like what is the, the outcome that is able to be produced by the copywriting that you're, you're delivering to that client and you getting clear on what that is. Um, I think the second thing is like aligning your price, understanding like what does it operationally take from an expense standpoint to be able to do what you do or a time perspective, but also think about it of like, what is the return on investment? that this client is going to experience by the work that I'm writing for them um, and just making sure there's a healthy balance between those two things. Um, and then when it comes to the actual packaging of the offer, like I think a lot, it's, it's, you have to keep it simple. Like confused clients do not convert. And if one thing I noticed with copywriters uh, who are selling lower ticket and they start transitioning into high is they offer way too many freaking options. It's like too many a la carte's, it's and I know for me the one making the buying decision if it's too convoluted like I have to figure out what I need. Um, I think as a copywriter when you start elevating your price points, it's it's not like well let this client just decide what they want. They're also hiring you because you're the expert. You they want you to come to the table saying this is what you need and this is this is the package that delivers it versus giving them like all the variable options of well, give me this, but take out that. Like they're trying to like, I don't know, customize the Build-A-Bear. They, they, I think when you start stepping into high end, there's a level of expertise and certainty that, that somebody is also paying for and why they're willing to pay premium because they're working with somebody who understand. And this is really where niching down, we call it the pop method, pick one problem, pick one person, package one process. So when you start elevating into high ticket, it's really important to, one synthesize down like and really narrow and niche down on like what the actual deliverable is going to be, who specifically it is going to be for, um, and like not necessarily having this wide swing of customization from client to client because that does allow you to establish like more position yourself as a, as an authority as an expert rather than being a generalist. I call it like the spork analogy. Um, you guys like. You know, like sporks, like they're spoons. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, the Kentucky Fried Chicken utensil. Yes. You can't eat a $500 steak with a spork. Like, <laughs> the spork is trying to do too many things. Um, and a lot of the time in business, when you start elevating, a lot of people, and myself included, when I started my business, I was a spork. I was trying to be a spoon and a fork. I was trying to do all the things that, you know, customize and bend and shape. Well, I can serve everybody. Um, but when you're trying to move into elevated price points and higher end premium services, you got to decide, are you the knife? Are you the fork? Or are you the spoon? And like, you know, you can't successfully eat a like a high end steak with a, with a plastic spork. So it's stop being a spork and we really have to start stepping, stepping into being a specialist. 
And the POP method is a really great rule of thumb of pick one problem that you're going to be solving that's specific, that's tangible, that is results-based. Um, focus on one you know, a, a minimum viable audience, like one specific narrow niche target client to go after and really focus on developing, packaging one process that, you know, I would say 80% is pretty consistent from client to client. And there might be a little bit of margin for variable or customization. Okay. So let's say we've figured this out. We've worked through the pop and we have, we've figured all that out. How do you structure the sales call for high ticket? What are you doing differently um, compared to just like selling a regular package? What do we need to be thinking about, asking, and doing on those calls? Yes, I love this question. I love talking about sales and making money. It makes me so happy. (laughs) Um, And I love other people making more money. But we call it the champagne closer method. Um, And this came from like when you see like luxury high end real estate, a lot of the time the real estate agent isn't selling the house. The house kind of sells itself. All they have to do is just bring the champagne, pop the bottle and pour the glasses. Um, But the house sells itself. And when you start elevating your price points and handling a sales conversation, I want you to think about it from that type of perspective. Um, But we are really big on, I use organic marketing um, to sell. And I'm I'm giving you guys context because it's not just about what, there's a lot of selling that happens before we ever get somebody on the call. Um, But I would say most people, most of my clients, especially the ones in the writing space, how they used to handle their sales calls were, you know, they get on a sales call, they may talk to the client about, you know, what results they're looking to accomplish, like what exactly it is that they want. Um, And then on that call is when they really start to to sell the offer, like breaking down all the things that are included. Um, Then they start getting objections or, you know, questions that are, you know, not closing questions, but more of like maybe objections or those types of things. And they're trying to handle a lot on one call conversation. Um, And I know a lot of clients, especially in the writing space in the past, is like, I feel sleazy. I don't want to feel misleading. Like it's kind of too much spotlight at one time for me to be able to handle that on that one phone conversation. And I kind of like crumble in either discount or downsell versus like enrolling them in the thing that I know that they need because it was just too much to kind of manage and handle on one call. So we kind of like to, not even kind of, we like to break up um, our sales process a bit using our, in our free content, instead of teaching people what to do, we start teaching people what to think. And all of our marketing content, and if you're selling high ticket, I highly recommend that you start to do this, is what are the objections that you've always gotten? What are the limiting beliefs that somebody has? What are all the other options that somebody might consider over you that's preventing them from wanting to work with you? And then how can what is the belief that they have and how can you shift that belief in your free content? Because if people are consuming your free content and you're shifting their beliefs in that free content, you're kind of taking some of that load of convincing that you have to do on a sales call and you're doing it before you even ever make like physical contact with that person. So that's the first thing that I would change about your sales process um, to help alleviate and streamline the actual sales call. But stop teaching people what to do in your content. No more of this like how to, here are three copywriting subject line hacks. Like we want to stop. And that works really, really well when you're selling low ticket. But when you start raising the rates, it the buying decision criteria of a client significantly evolves. So we want to use your free content to not teach them necessarily what to do all the time, but start teaching them what they need to think. What are the beliefs and the mindset that we need to shift them into? And then once we invite them to the call, once the call is actually started and you've already done some of this belief shifting in your organic content, then, you you know, at the beginning, we will, you know, kind of build rapport. We'll set the, well, we talk about where they future wise want to go. We talk about what challenges they're experiencing now. And then I pause and say, what about this conversation has been the most valuable for you? Because that gives me some, like, now I'm not having to sell myself on why I'm so good. They're now selling themselves on why I'm so good. Like, they're the ones saying it versus me convincing them. So it's it's leading, um, We call, it's permission-based sales. It's leading from a very, um, like, permission-based perspective. So instead of me forcing myself on them or trying to convince them of how valuable, like, I know that I am, I give them the opportunity to tell me instead. And that's a minor tweak, but it has a significant impact. Once we talk about value and, you know, why me, why now, like why this is important for you, 
I'd, I never lead with like the closing information. I always ask, okay, where would you like to go from here? What questions do you have for me? And it completely changes the dynamic of the call because now I'm not selling anything. All I'm doing is holding space and they're asking questions. They may ask, well, how much is this? Really great question. Let me explain to you how the investment works. Or what is the time frame or when can I expect deliverables? Excellent question. Let me break that down. And again, it shifts the dynamic of me like convincing them or having to tell them to them asking me just responding. So it those are that's like really how I would handle. And that's how we do handle. It's how we teach our clients to handle high end sales conversations. But it starts with the organic marketing ahead of time because we're your free content is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you so that you're not doing it on your sales call. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a, a ton of sense. I, and I love this conversation and the way you're kind of shifting my thinking, hopefully other people's thinking as well around um, changing from you know what to do to what to think. I'm curious, what does that whole pre-sale period look like? So, you know, the typical copywriter maybe has a lead magnet that then leads to some kind of a form or, or engagement, but with a high ticket sale, it feels like that process is going to be a little bit longer, maybe more complex, but maybe... Maybe I'm wrong about that. What what does that process? And I again, I know this is probably going to be different for different clients. Can you give us maybe a template for what that should look like? Yeah, we teach all of our clients the same process, um, whether they're a copywriter, selling high ticket, or a, a, a wellness coach. Um, but we, I'm a very like lean approach perspective. Um, it can be complicated if you choose for it to be. But like where I found my greatest level of success is when we kept it lean and kept it simple. Um, so our whole sales process is really, our, and our marketing process starts with live video content. And in today's world, especially when you're selling high ticket, you know, it, especially if you're focusing on organic marketing methods, um, live video is going to be your best bet because one, all the social media platforms prioritize live video content over stagnant posts or um, pre-recorded, uploaded videos. So you're going to get naturally a higher organic reach than you would of other content. Um, but we start, we, we call it the lean launch and it's, um, it, well, I want to go back to your first thing, Rob, of, like, well, I think maybe it'll take me longer to get somebody to buy. One metric that everybody who's listening to this should start paying attention to is like, what is your actual sales cycle? From the moment that somebody discovers you to the moment that they purchase, how long does that take and what type of touch points happen in between um, that would cause somebody to buy? Because it's really important to know what that is. Um, we've been able to help our clients get down to like a, a about a three month sales cycle for a high ticket offer, which some of them do it significantly faster. But I'd say on average, that's usually the time frame, three to four months. Um, but the we focus on live video content. We teach our clients if it's a targeted launch period where they're trying to sell something specific, we will typically do their lean launch. It's nine videos over three weeks. And the important thing that I think would be most valuable for somebody listening is not just like turn your camera on and go live. Well, it is that simple. That is the thing about it. But really thinking about how do I, what type of content do I need to be introducing in those videos to be able to shift beliefs before I get somebody on a sales call? And this is really where you start to break down how buyers make decisions at a higher price point level. Um, and there's really three phases of awareness that every prospect goes through before they're willing to make a buying decision. There's an unaware, there's a problem aware, and there's a solution aware. Unaware, they don't actually know what their problem is, or they have misdiagnosed what their problem is. Like, you know, um, if we're talking about copywriters, maybe maybe it's a, a coach who just thinks that they need to read, they, they need to just learn how to write copy on their own in order to sell their thing. When in actuality, it's not their zone of genius, they actually just need to hire a copywriter. Um, but that's a belief that we have to now shift them into that. This is the value of why you hire a copywriter. This is really what copywriters actually do. Like, this is why you should hire an expert versus you trying to do it on your own. Um, then once you can get them and buy them into the belief that they understand what their actual problem is as it aligns with what your offer is, then you have to get them to buy into like, what is the actual solution to that problem? Do they hire, you know, a generalist copywriter? Do they hire a freelance copywriter off of Upwork? Like, what type of copywriter should they actually be hiring? A conversion copywriter? versus like maybe more of a nurturing and engagement type of copywriter, but you have to enroll them into what solution that they need to buy. And then once they're solution aware, why you? And so that's like the, the type, we do one live video. Well, we do that. If it's a targeted launch, it'll be nine videos over three weeks, walking through those three phases of awareness. 
If it's ongoing content, we typically like to do at least one live video a week. But really the the, the thing that makes it magical, the thing that makes it really work is I, I always say sales is a contact sport. The more contact that you make with your prospects, the more money that you will naturally make. Um, but many of us are not making enough contact. So it's like, how can I increase my contact with my prospects without me as the business owner or the individual having to make 50,000 pieces of content every week? You, this is where we start to leverage our live video. So we'll take our live video and we'll repurpose it into a podcast episode. We'll take our live video and transcribe it and turn it to an email newsletter. We'll take that live video and transcribe it into an Instagram caption. We'll take that live video and turn it into a small video that we upload on our newsfeed. I'll do Instagram stories recapping the things that I talked about in that live video. And because our approach is organic, now we've now, um, I only know how to play two video games, The Sims and Call of Duty. And in Call of Duty, you want to like surround the flag, like you want to surround your prospects. And it's like, how can you, you want to surround your like opponent. And it's like, how can I do the exact same thing from a marketing perspective? You, instead of trying to create all these assets of content, create one hero piece of content, which I like to use live video, and then strategically repurpose that so that you're making, you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to make contact with the prospect and also increasing the likelihood that you're going to shift that belief that needs to be shifted for them to be even in a position to make a buying decision. Okay. That, that was amazing. So we definitely need to work on our, our content and how we're approaching our content. Um, Jerisha, I kind of want to step backwards right now, and this might be repetitive, but I just want to make sure I understand it because I love the way that you structure your sales call. And so it sounds like you're asking questions, you know, finding out about what they're struggling with, um, a couple questions, and then you're asking them a question and throwing it back at them. So what, do you, what did you learn from this conversation or what was your biggest takeaway? And then maybe a little bit more chatting. And then at the end, you're asking them, again, what questions do you have? What, are, what would help you make next steps forward? Can you just break it down a little bit more? Because I want to do this. I want to test it. Yeah, that's good. So I would start the conversation of like building just natural rapport. But I love to always have the conversation of why now, why me? And this is really important because um, I think, you know, we – they schedule the call. So we just like assume a lot of the time, like, well, they're here because they want to be here. But I think it's really important to re-solidify like from their own words and then being the one say it of like, this is why I chose you. Again, now they're selling themselves on you again, but they're doing it verbally. Um, and why now you always want to understand urgency. Because, um, you know, you can get talk to people all day, but if there's if, if you don't clearly understand why this is urgent for them, why this is a priority for them now, versus them investing or doing something else, um, you know, we can really drop the ball by not having clarity on that up front. So I like to get that out of the way and really, really dig into like understanding what their urgency and the priority factor is now and why is that important for them right now versus like waiting another week or waiting another year to solve this problem. Um, and that, and, and, and if, if there's no urgency um, and like, there's no real good reason as to why they want me. Like I will end the sales conversation because it's not the, the whole goal of the sales call. My goal is not to get them to buy. My goal is for them to make a decision, whether that decision is with me or not with me. It's very like service over selling. And I think, um, at, from a selling perspective, it allows you to detach from what the outcome is, but it also just ensures that you're operating from integrity and enrolling people into something that is aligned and is a good fit. Um, so that's the first thing. Like if if there's no clear level of urgency and there's not really a clear understanding of like why me and why now, like I will just say, hey, I, I'm not really seeing there's alignment. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to be able to help you solve your problem. Let me refer you to somebody else or like let me just wish you well and be blessed. Um, but if we can get through that, then it's, we talk about the future. Like where is it they're trying to go? What outcomes are they trying to accomplish? Um, what's slowing them down or stopping them or getting them in the way from getting the results that they want? Like what are the challenges that they're experiencing? Um, sometimes we'll talk a little bit about um, like what is what else have they tried that hasn't worked so that I, I can get a good understanding, again, of what their beliefs were before this. I, well, I you know, took this, I bought these email copywriting templates, but then I got them and I didn't know how to necessarily make them align from a messaging standpoint. I didn't know how to make the story connect. That gives me insight on how they've made buying decisions before that I can 
leverage in the conversation to communicate value um, when the time does come. So normally that that's how we like the, I did the first third of the call. And then I just like to do, I've always loved to just do a quick check-in to say like, hey, you know, what about this has been most valuable? Um, how are you, in, like, what about our conversation thus far has been enlightening for you? And that just takes, that most people don't do that in sales conversations. Um, so it, it's a really nice like breakup in like pattern, you know, like a lot of people get on calls and it's like this, I know this person's going to try to sell me into something and like, we want to do what we can to like let down the guard um, and just, you know, create a safe environment and and establish, a you know, trust from that perspective. So I just like to, I like to just have a check in. How are things going? How are you feeling? Like, what about this conversation has been most valuable? It's really good insight for me to see like what things have we discussed or have they shared themselves that are really standing out. And it just gives them a moment to reflect and again, kind of like break up the pattern of what they probably expect to happen on the call because of what they've experienced with other people. And then from there, it's really like, you know, I've, I've been asking a lot of questions. You know, I, I think this is probably a good fit. Um, what questions do you have for me? And this allows, like, you want to have control in the beginning of the conversation, like lead as the authority, lead as the expert, but you also want to give them control. And again, it, it just shifts the dynamic of the like emotional state that this person is going through, both you and them, again, to create a safe environment for this conversation to be happening. Because um, I just think there's, there can just be a lot of tension on sales calls and like fear and I don't know, like nasty expectations that are not always true. Um, but that allows them to be asking the closing questions, which puts you in a really strong position because now, again, it, it just changed the dynamic of the conversation. So they'll ask their closing questions. Usually it's about like, well, what, what happens next? How do we get started? What's the investment? What's all included? Um, is, is this going to work for me? And you'll just answer whatever questions they have. But it's, it's how do I say this? It's kind of like a, even in, in relationships. It's not, you're not forcing yourself on them. You're not, you know, it's permission. You're asking for permission. And like, that is, that that's healthy conversation and healthy relationship and like normal personal life. Just a lot of us don't translate that over really well in our business environment, especially in a sales conversation. So it's leading with that permission-based perspective. And then, you know, they'll, they'll ask their questions and they'll get to a place where it's like, well, where do we go from here? And that's really great. And then you start your enrollment process. Um, we collect payment over the phone. We teach our clients how to collect payment over the phone rather than sending invoices. And that's because we, they have very pretty structured processes. Um, they're not, there's not a lot of variable or customization, but I always try, to, even if you do need to send a proposal or send an invoice, schedule a follow-up call. Do not let them, how do I say this? You don't, you don't want to like leave the, you don't want to leave the sales loop open so like, even if you do need to send a proposal and it's like, hey, I'm going to send you this invoice or send you this proposal in the next couple of days, let's schedule a follow-up call so we can discuss your decision and just determine what next steps need to be. So you want to maintain control of the entire sales container from the moment they book until the moment they make a decision. And a lot of the time, most people do not, that follow-up, most people don't do, and they let the person make the decision on their own at home. And especially if you're selling high ticket and you're moving them into like, they're investing in something that's probably like, maybe the most they've ever spent or is going to force them to up-level in a way. Um, again, we don't want their fear to cloud their judgment on making their decision. So it's like, how can we maintain, again, that safety, security, and control over the conversation? Schedule that follow-up call so that that decision can be clearly communicated rather than a prospect like ghosting you or you know not responding or, hey, I thought about it some more, even though I was all in yesterday, I'm pulling out. And like, because it, it's, it's normal if you're selling high end and this being dealing with clients, this is their first time investing at that level where they can kind of like talk themselves out of it. Um, not because it's not the right fit, but just because it's an up level and they're afraid. So that's more of like a detailed breakdown of, of our champagne closer method and like how we handle sales calls. I do want to maybe change the conversation just a little bit, Jerishia, because I think some people may be listening to this and say, oh yeah, well that works when things are going really well, but you know, recently the economy hasn't been so great or, you know, I'm, I'm working from home and I've got all of these other things going on in my life and I can't focus on the kinds of stuff that I need to focus on. How would you say that buying behavior has changed in the last, uh, you know, six months or so you know, recording this five, six months into the coronavirus, uh, stuff that's going on, like how has buying behavior changed and what do we need to do to make sure that we're staying on top of that? 
Yeah, I feel like people's um, sensitivity is like ridiculously heightened right now, like which is a positive thing and can also be a challenging thing to deal with. Um, I think people are very, very hyper aware of where like gaps, challenges, problems are, what uncertainty actually is. Like this uncertainty in the world has always existed pre-COVID and post-COVID. Like there's there's less, we have way less control than we like coerce, like believe, you know, convince ourselves that we actually have. And it's very, very prevalent right now. Um, but I think it's really important. If you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, you know, I think people are very like if you're selling an offer that if you were selling an offer before that was more of like on the higher end of that pyramid, more um, like, you know, highest level of identity, like more non-tangible. I think for the general population, your positioning or your your messaging is going to need to shift to be more focused on like those first two rungs of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like, um like primary, like your baseline psychological needs being met of, you know, shelter, food, regular, like day-to-day life getting by, safety of like personal security, employment. Um, and then that middle tier of like love and belonging, like relationship, friendships, connectivity, and intimacy. Um, and I'm, I'm just bringing that in because again, understanding the psychology of how your buyer makes decisions is really, really important when you're trying to sell. And especially if you're trying to sell high ticket, because there's other variables that are now at play. And the biggest thing that we've helped our clients do and myself has done is like really looking at where maybe I can't keep, um, well, I guess we really haven't ever have, but you have to really be dialed in on what your promise is and your ability to articulate it in a way that coincides with one of those base level needs or like security and like financial needs and being able to communicate how your offer is going to give them that security and safety. And I think before some of us could kind of get away with not with that not being very clear um, because there may be, you know, times weren't as sensitive as they are right now. But I think that is literally right when COVID, well, our business has tripled since COVID hit, which has been insane. Most of our clients have grown significantly since COVID hit, either doubling their revenue or tripling their revenue. And it's been because they have been able to realign and readjust the positioning of their offer to align with that, to provide that not not just the idea of or the confidence that yes I can deliver what you're asking me to do but I can also communicate and create this trust of like security and safety making this buying decision with me. And I think that's just a really important thing that I don't know if it's going to change anytime soon um but, but even if things go back to normal whatever normal even might look like for us after all of this if you can maintain that confidence and that certainty and, and safety when you're articulating your value, like you're always going to do really, really well. Um, it's just a stronger way to sell, especially if you're selling high end. So like one thing I had my clients do, what we did is like we really looked at like, what are we selling? The first thing is like, what do we actually need to cut? Like there's probably offers that we're selling that are not profitable. There's probably things that we're doing that are not actually producing results that align with where we're trying to go. Like the very first thing is re- remove any confusion in your offers remove anything that's not profitable for you in your own business, because that will give you capacity to actually show up and sell and articulate your value in a way that's more convicted and with more confidence and more certainty by not having, you know, distractions in your own business. Um, But then from there, it's like, really look at what, what is my program promise? Like, what is the guarantee that I'm selling somebody? Um, How confident am I in my promise and my guarantee Like how strong am I in my ability to be able to articulate the value of it in a way that yes, communicates that I can do what they they need to do, but also gives them this feeling of safety and security. Um, And and maybe this might be helpful, like a a tangible thing that we've done is we used to just have like um, client contracts, like very legal jargon client contracts. Um, But one thing that we started doing at the beginning of this year, this is actually before COVID hit, but it's been a huge asset to us once COVID did happen, Um, and especially even when all of like the racial protesting and things like that started, is we created what we call um, like a program promise or an offer promise. And this goes beyond what's listed in the contract, but it really just clearly details out like, this is what you can expect from us. These are all the, like, it's like 12 or 15 bullet points of how we're going to treat them, how they can expect communication from us. Um, what they can expect from us from a deliverable standpoint. And then this is this is what we expect from you. And there's five bullet points on things on what we expect for them. 
And that document has been really helpful because it, it creates security and safety. There's no ambiguity of, of the relationship or the agreement that we're stepping into. And it just allows everybody to be on the exact same playing field to make decisions that are clear. And like, we know what we're both getting and we're both choosing to step into this. Um, but from a client perspective, like, I think all of my clients for me was like, wow, like I've, I feel safe making this investment, even though it may be scary for me or maybe a big leap. So I would just think of those questions that I just listed, but also what are things that you can be incorporating into your process um, at the very beginning to also instill that and even more than just like what you can verbally say, like what are other assets that you can build into your onboarding process to really make them feel safe and make them feel like, yes, this is the right decision for me um, beyond just your ability to articulate and align how their problem is going to be solved with the promise of your offer and like why this is beneficial for them right now. Okay. So I know you mentioned, you know, you've hit the seven figure mark and I read somewhere in your content about seven mindset shifts that positioned your business for seven figures. Can you share a couple of those mindset shifts? I know we're at the end of our time together, so maybe sharing seven is too much, but what are some of your favorite or maybe most useful mindset shifts that copywriters could benefit from? I want to share one that I did not include in that podcast episode so that if people go back and listen, there'll be there are seven that are fantastic. But I want to share one that I didn't share there that I recently was having a conversation with my girlfriends about. Um, when I was starting, I never knew, like one, I didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to make a lot of money, but I thought it was going to happen through corporate. I, I mean, I didn't know that this world existed or that this is something that I even wanted for my life. So maybe somebody can relate to that versus like I started this business because I wanted to make seven figures. Like that was a, an identity or a goal that has definitely evolved over the years. Um, but when I was in my business and uh, I had crossed the six figure mark, I was making like maybe 150K, 200K a year. I used to have this like mindset belief that like I had, I, I wouldn't be successful unless I had like this massive launch. Like I'd have to, I just had this goal that I had to make 100K in one launch in order to be deemed successful. So like one of the mindset shifts I would invite you guys all to look into was like, one, what are your current beliefs around money? And like, do those beliefs actually serve you? Who taught them to you? Where did you learn them from? And like, are these truths that you want to continue keeping as you move forward? But I used to have this very strong belief. I had a lot of shame anytime that I would do a launch or like had this targeted effort to enroll clients. If I didn't hit the goal, I, I would feel so defeated I would have like this internal embarrassment that I would experience. Like I just had, I carried the shame around because it's like, oh, I only got two clients or, oh, I only got seven clients or, oh, I only got whatever it was. It never actually hit the the bigger goal that I was going after. And one of the biggest minds, there was two mindset shifts in that, that I think really unlocked my potential to be able to, to grow exponentially this year. Like literally at the beginning of this year, we were doing about $25,000 in revenue Last year we were we could not break over the 30k a month consistently. Like we would hit it and then it would drop and then we would hit it and it would drop. Um, but we've been having consistent 100k months the past few months here. And like it, this, I attribute a lot of that to this like mindset shift. Is like first and foremost, like check your ego. Like I kept saying that I only got this. I'm like, if my clients heard me say that, how would that cause them to feel, or what would they think about me? If I was like, well, I only got three people or I only got whatever it was, like diminishing the value of that person because it's, it's a pure ego thing. Um, so that's one thing of like every human body that you touch and serve is, ju is just as valuable as if, as if a thousand of them wanted to touch and serve you, like or you got to touch and serve a thousand. So don't ever diminish the value of like who has trusted you to say yes um, and to work with you. But the second thing of like, Every my success is not dependent on how big or not one launches. Like my business is not a launch. A launch is a is a vehicle or a strategy that I can use to have a cash injection in my business, but my business is not the launch itself. Like the success of my business is not dependent on how well or how bad a launch goes. And that was a mindset shift. I'm not sure if this is like an aha for you guys, but it was huge for me. Maybe you guys already had this figured out. But that like my success or the growth of the business is not dependent on the outcome of one launch. And that really, I think, just freed me up to not focus or have all of this pressure on like one targeted outreach to like having like this make or break type of mentality around it. 
Um, and I really just started focusing, shifting my energy and attention on like, how can I increase my monthly recurring revenue? How can I, instead of me focusing on getting one huge cash injection at one time, how can I focus on making micro improvements in my marketing, micro improvements in my client delivery, micro improvements in my sales conversations? How can I just increase my metrics by a percent, two percent, three percent so that like I'm increasing my monthly recurring revenue rather than having this huge cash injection? And that was a mindset shift that like it catapulted us because my focus on diagnosing the problem shifted. I started going after different things or looking at different things um, as solutions rather than, you know, focusing on how do I make this one big launch, make all this money or else my business is a failure type of thing. So that was when I did not include in that podcast episode or that live stream um, that, I mean, that has been huge for me. Jerisha, you mentioned mindset shifts. I feel like I've had about five of them on this podcast and maybe I should have had a few more. I mean, you've shared so much valuable information. Hopefully our listeners are going to find it just as valuable. Maybe I just needed to hear it in, you know, for where I am in my business. But if people want to hear more from you, maybe hop on your email list or connect with you in some way, where should they go to find out more? Yeah. The first thing that I would love to invite you to do is actually screenshot yourself listening to this podcast episode and tag Kira, Rob, and myself over on Instagram stories and just let us know what your top takeaway was. Like, I think listening to episodes like these are great and you can leave motivated and like maybe you have an extra pep in your step if you're like walking or jogging while listening to this. Um, but I would love for us to like cement in one thing that either you can start to implement or one thing that you can start thinking about a little bit differently based off of what we discussed today. So um, tag me over on Instagram stories. I'm at Jerisha Hawk and my website's jerishahawk.com. Um, you can find me everywhere on social at Jerisha Hawk, but I would love to continue the conversation, um, in DMs about the dialogue we've had today. So I'm just at Jerisha Hawk and I will see you in over on Instagram stories. I love that idea of bringing everyone over to Instagram because you're, I think you're the first guest who's asked our listeners to take action and post. So I like that challenge. And I, yeah, I echo Rob. This is, I've had so many aha moments from this conversation. So thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your expertise with us. You guys are so welcome. This was such a fruitful convo. So I had, I had a pleasure being here. All right. Thank you. That's the end of our interview with Teresha Hawk. Last week, I told you that Seth Godin's interview was the one of the past 375 that I referred back to and re-listened to the most. But quite honestly, this interview with Teresha is a close second. I've come back to it several times as I've thought about things like high ticket sales and how do I do that self-evaluation, the questions that I should be asking myself at the end of every month or every quarter or every year to make sure that I'm focused on the right things and moving my business forward. So let me just take a second to mention two big takeaways that help explain why I love this episode or this interview so much. First, the idea of super thinking that Jerisha mentioned near the very beginning of our interview is something that I'm really drawn to. Business consultant Perry Marshall talks about a similar idea. He calls it Renaissance time. Renaissance time is focused around reading old books and thinking and journaling. Kira and I have called this kind of super thinking CEO time. That's where you're setting aside 30 minutes a day or a few dedicated hours one day a week to do nothing but think about your business. Sometimes that takes the form of a CEO retreat once or twice a year where you take a day or two, get away from your office and get away from wherever it is that you do your work and go and sit and think and ask yourself questions about what you're going to do differently. You're thinking about goals. You're thinking about your business, thinking about what's working, what's not working, what might stop working in the future, what's changing, what's new, what's getting stale. It's a practice that's all about getting ahead of things and taking control. So you're not always reacting to what's happening around you. You're diagnosing challenges and situations before they happen. So you're ready for them. And as you do this, Jerisha mentioned a fantastic book called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. It's full of questions that will get you thinking more strategically about your business. We'll link to it in the show notes. We actually took many of those questions from Keith's book and distilled them into a newsletter resource that's available in the Copywriter Underground. If you're serious about starting your own super thinking habit, and you should be, it's a resource that you need. Check it out there, copyright, thecopywriterunderground.com. And then use it as you spend 30 minutes a day or a few hours a week thinking about your business and what you could or should be doing differently. 
One other thing I want to reiterate, though Jerisha probably said it better than I can, is the way that we talk about what we do. To work with better clients, you have to be able to articulate the value you create in a way that your clients can easily understand what you do and what they get. And you have to be able to articulate the value you create in a way that connects to your client's bottom line. And third, you have to be able to do those two things over and over and over. As Jerisha said, it's not just about getting clients to know you or to like you or to trust you. It's going further so they believe you, they respect you, and they align with the work that you do. And what she shared about the sales conversation was critical. If you're selling on the call, it's too late. Your prospect will raise objections and then you're going to have to sell them. There's going to be some back and forth. You may lose them. But if you let your marketing sell for you, Marketing that helps change your prospects' thinking and shift their beliefs before they get on a call with you, before they even interact with you, now they show up ready to buy. It's a different conversation. And then you take that opportunity to pause in the middle of that conversation and ask, you know, what is working for you? Has What's been valuable so far? Where would you like to go from here? What do you need from me? It completely shifts the conversation so you're not selling at all. The client has sold themselves on you, and it only makes sense to start talking about the project that you're going to be working on together. I also love what Jerisha said about taking payment on the sales call. Uh, I've never done that to, to you know, not leave that sales loop open after the call, but to complete it, you've got the sale done. This is completely different from the way that most copywriters approach selling. In fact, some of us uh, actually foolishly wait until our project is done to get paid any money at all. That's a, a terrible approach, but getting all of the money upfront on the call before you've even talked about the project uh, that's a new idea or, or we're coming back to an idea that was new at the time and something that I'm going to figure out a little bit better how to do that. Finally, I'm just going to mention that idea that change and uncertainty are a constant. We recorded this interview initially during the pandemic. And at, at that time, there was all kinds of weird stuff happening. And many of us felt that the last year was you know, really uncertain and a lot of crazy stuff was happening. And quite honestly, a lot of us are going to experience that kind of uncertainty in the coming months. There's just no way around it. So prepare for it, be ready. And that super thinking may help you do that again. I want to thank Jerisha Hawk for opening up so generously about her sales process, about her thinking around mindset and so much more. We really appreciate her thoughts and insights. Uh, she's one of those people that I watch from afar and learn from every time I see her speak or talk. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to the podcast and leave a review of the show. And don't miss our other podcast at AIforcreativeentrepreneurs.com. You can also watch that on YouTube and listen wherever you listen to your other podcasts like this one. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.